You're listening to The Local Maximum, Episode 6. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. The time has come. Yes, this is number six, but it's the first podcast episode that I'm doing on my own, and it is not fluff. We have some serious topics lined up. I thought a lot about this, how often we're going to have guests and what happens when we don't have guests. By the way, we have a great guest next week. It's Dennis Crowley. He's the founder of Foursquare, Dodgeball, Kingston Stockade, all the good things in the world, basically. And I asked for questions online. I got some good ones. If you're listening to this, it's probably a little too late unless you're getting it before Tuesday late afternoon. But if you're listening to this on Monday night, that's Monday, March 19th, 2018, or Tuesday morning, early afternoon, and you have a question that you'd like me to ask Dennis, let me know. Send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Anyway, back to this particular show. These solo shows, I've decided, are a really good opportunity to take stock in what we've learned in the previous episodes and in the ongoing themes of this podcast and apply it to the in, some interesting articles and news stories uh, that are coming out. Now, the theme of this podcast, uh, The Local Maximum, uh, well, that's the name of the podcast, but originally I challenged myself to do 10 episodes and not worry too much about what the theme is going to be or the marketing pitch and just kind of see how it goes and see what comes out of that. But now that we're in episode six, I think that the theme is sort of starting to take place. Um, I think, first of all, I want to be able to take my experience working in machine learning and consumer-facing social products and use that to you know, help people interpret the technology landscape. Uh, another theme is sort of interviewing people who have something interesting to say about you know, something they're working on or you know, someone who gets you sort of thinking in a different way or maybe thinking about something that you wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Um, and then, of course, using you know, Bayesian statistics and logic to analyze things. So that's kind of where we're going. I know it's still not a very succinct message yet, but it's coming together. It's a lot more together than it was at the beginning. So here we are. So to that end, we're going to start looking at the latest article in the New York Times about Facebook in the election of 2016. Uh, did I pick a good time to start a podcast critiquing our social networks or what. Uh, I'm going to try to distill down exactly what happened and what I think of the coverage. Uh, Then after that, you know, there's a problem. And then I want to talk about solutions too. So I want to talk about a recent Medium article by VC Chris Dixon about the triumph of decentralization. We talked about Bitcoin and Ethereum last week. I got some really good feedback on that. A lot of plays, I noticed. And I think that uh, decentralization is going to answer some of the social problems that we're going to bring up today. And Chris Dixon breaks down how this could happen. So that's it. I hope you learn a lot and enjoy. We're going to start with some national news before diving into the more tech-specific stuff. There's a recent article in the New York Times. Headline is, How Trump Consultants Exploited the Facebook Data of Millions. This article is about the data mining slash machine learning part of the campaign that is used to look at data from tens of millions of people 
and carefully craft and personalize uh, a message and pinpoint those people who uh, the campaigns need to flip from voting from one person to another. Now, in the article, they call it psychographics, like it's psychological warfare. Uh, another part of the article that's interesting is that they say a large data set from Facebook was obtained through questionable means. We'll get into that. And that this data set, what one whistleblower says, uh, was what made the operation successful. And we're going to talk about that and what's the likelihood of that being true. Now, another part of this article is about the improprieties, or maybe I should say the alleged improprieties on the part of the company uh, that was uh, violating the campaign rules. And I know this is going to be investigated to death in the coming months. I'm sure that we'll get to the bottom of it. Uh, anything that casts doubt on the legitimacy of the election of Donald Trump will be printed in all the major newspapers. Like him or not, I think we could agree on that. Now, before we take an honest assessment of this article, and spoiler, it does not look really good for anyone involved, I think we need to understand the context of this article because the language that is being used is loaded language. Uh, the headline... The headline reads, How Trump Consultant Exploited the Facebook Data of Millions. Well, I think that's factually true, but words like exploitation and psychographics, which again, I really think is a way to conjure up psychological warfare or psychological abuse, that's the kind of language that uh, headline writers want to use in order to get you to feel a certain way uh, before reading the facts in the articles. Now, this seems obvious when you point it out, but it's really difficult to discover unless you're looking for it. I'm sure I'm fooled for it like a bazillion times a day without even thinking about it. Uh, being on the radio in college kind of helped me get a little better at picking that out, but then I was, still wasn't good after reading and reading lots of materials over the last 10 years. That helped as well. Then I got even better at sort of picking this stuff out. So, Yes, it had a loaded headline, but before we get into the facts of the article, I actually want to compare it to another article that was posted by The Guardian after the 2012 election. Now, this is The Guardian, not The New York Times. I know that The Guardian isn't The New York Times, but this is just a really interesting contrast of what the standard narrative was at the time in 2012-2013 and how that narrative has really flipped in an incredible way. So this article, this article from 2012, the title was Obama, Facebook, and the Power of Friendship, the 2012 Data Election. And the subtitle, uh, listen to this, the subtitle gets even better. A unified computer database that gathers and refines information on millions of potential voters is at the forefront of campaign technology and could be the key to an Obama win. Now ask yourself for a minute, this doesn't matter what side you're on, is there really a big difference in terms of the meaning for the two headlines? I'm not talking about the difference in the articles, uh, the substance of the articles they're a little bit different, and I'll get to that in a minute. But is there really a difference in the substance of the two headlines? So the second headline read, How Obama Consultants Exploited the Facebook Data of Millions. Would that really be a very different meaning than Obama, Facebook, and the Power of Friendship, the 2012 data election? I think that would be an equally accurate headline. 
The Obama article doesn't have any reporting on the impropriety of the methods of getting any data or any corrupt schemes or anything like that uh, that's covered in the Trump one. So it could be that the Democratic campaigns are really above board as compared to the Republican ones and any and all impropriety done in the name of electing Obama will be just as vigorously investigated and covered by the New York Times and all that uh, if it actually happened. I actually think it's the position of a lot of people. Uh, certainly, it's the idea that you get when you read those two articles. Okay, so let's first dive into the Obama article from the 2012 a little bit, then we'll get into the Trump one. So I love the title. It's about friendship. It says that in the title. It's like, scanning your likes is an act of love. Hey, if I were to start a political consulting firm, maybe that's a good catchphrase. The article does give the impression that it was all done with consent, uh, the 2012 one. Again, it's kind of unclear. Here's a quote from an unnamed digital campaign organizer. If you log in with Facebook, now the campaign has connected you with all of your relationships. End quote. Okay. Uh, there's one paragraph in the article that expresses some concerns, but it's buried way, way, way deep in the article, and it's quickly dispensed with. It's like, oh, this is such a great thing, all this thing's happening. Some people say there's a little bit of a problem, but eh, not really. Let's move on. Here, let, let, me, let me read this. The centralized nature, note this word, centralized. We're going to come back to this. The centralized nature of the database may raise privacy issues as the election cycle progresses. Uh, Jeff Chester of the Digital Advertising Watchdog Center for Digital Democracy, which has been calling for regulators to review the growth of digital marketing and politics, said that this is beyond J. Edgar Hoover's dream. In its rush to exploit the power of digital data to win re-election, the Obama campaign appears to be ignoring the ethical and moral implications. But from the vantage point of the campaign, the benefits are evident. And then it just goes on. So really, like, the whole tenor of the article was just something like, you know, isn't it wonderful that all of these young kids are taking what they learned in school, all the, all the math that they learned, and they're using it to fight for what they believe in? This is really the view taken by people in the tech industry, people into, quote, uh, data science until really recently. I went to an event in 2014. This was the machine learning event in World Trade Center 7. And the name of the talk was something like Machine Learning for Social Good. So I'm like, oh, Machine Learning for Social Good. Let's see what this is. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine what I was expecting. It could be like maybe they wanted to distribute food and clean water in developing countries. Uh, maybe they wanted to help people, underserved people, join the global economy. It could, domestically, maybe it could be like spreading educational services, maybe helping people find jobs. Another big one. It could be helping companies find and recruit people who are kind of outside their usually usual social circle. All, all of those talks would be, I would categorize as machine learning for social good. But no, this person was actually a campaign consultant. Their talk was on machine learning for social good. It was actually about how they used machine learning uh, to help Obama get elected in 2012. You might understand the position of the person who was giving the talk. Hey, Obama's going to do good things. I helped Obama get elected. Therefore, machine learning for social good. But it was a little confusing to me. Uh, I was kind of like, you're not a social do-gooder. You're just part of this arms race of data analytics that's inherent in the political process. And eh, it's a living. But 
You may cheer for your side, but I don't know if I'd put that in the social good category. Uh, another interesting thing about this talk, so the, the speaker like assumed that electing Obama over Mitt Romney is a social good. Hey, may well be, but no argument was given. And I guess I mean, it was a New York audience. I don't blame him for that. But uh, And I wouldn't want to get into that either. But I feel like whenever I give a talk about anything, I kind of assume that there are going to be skeptics in the audience. Even you know, if I give a talk about Foursquare, I give a talk about uh, Bayesian statistics, all of that, I kind of assume that there's some frequentist in the audience. So the whole thing just struck me as very strange and uh, apparently normal to everyone else who was there. Uh, but now let's fast forward for a few years. Okay, <laughs> now we get to this article, how Trump consultants exploited the Facebook data of millions. We're shocked. People are being psychologically manipulated by campaign consultants. They're being exploited. This is a threat to democracy. They are fighting a culture war. I think that last one was actually said in the article. He used the term, they're, they're fighting a culture war. And it's being spoken about as if this came out of nowhere. And I kind of want to say, wait a minute, this didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, many of you have been cheering this on when it was one candidate. And then when another candidate comes along and this happens to an even greater extent, maybe soon we'll find out with more corners cut, uh, less consideration about ethical concerns. Well, how did this happen? And I think we've been feeding this monster for years. And I'd like to hear someone tell me that I'm wrong about that. Okay, so now let's get into some of the facts of the current article. Uh, there is a lot here, and I'm only going to focus on the data itself, how it was obtained, and also what effect uh, it could have had in the election, or at least in this particular consultancy's um, ability to play their role. Okay, so it says here that the data in question is from 50 million users. That's a good chunk of the voters. They say that this data set was obtained by Cambridge Analytics, Analytica, uh, that's funded by big-time Republican donors, the Mercer family. Someone got this data from Facebook, claiming that it was for academic purposes and sold data uh, to this firm. That sounds crazy, but I believe it. Uh, this is an issue with relying on a centralized service like Facebook. And in the next section with Chris Dixon's article, we're going to get into the possibility of moving to decentralized networks. That's, why, uh, that's the first thing to note. That's why I'm talking about this to begin with. So here's a quote from the Facebook general counsel. He said it was a scam and a fraud. So, so if I'm reading this correct, it sounds like Facebook is saying, oh, man, we got scammed. Uh, that's, uh, that's really bad. There's some tricky scammers out there. And they're also going to try to make sure that all the data is deleted, every copy. I never understand how you can make sure that data is deleted permanently. Like, What if somebody copied over it to a bunch of hard drives? It could be sitting in someone's garage for all we know. I don't know, maybe there's something about this I don't know, but it seems, it seems like you could never say, oh, I'm 100% sure it's been deleted once and for all. Okay, here's a quote. All he divulged to Facebook, this is the so-called uh, scammer, the, the guy who was saying he was doing it for academic purposes and then just took the whole thing and sold it. All he divulged to Facebook and to users in fine print was that he was collecting information for academic purposes, the social network said. It did not verify his claim. Ah, uh, the honor system. Gotta love it. Okay, anyway, the company Cambridge Analytica first said that they didn't get the data, and then they said they got it, but they deleted it two years ago when they realized how it was obtained. 
And now some internal emails suggest that they still have it, um, though, I don't know, we'll get to the bottom of it soon enough. So what does this data have? By the way, this is kind of, you know, it's buried in the article a little bit. It's, you kind of have to, you have, you have to actually read the article. <laughs> so I'll do it for you so that, uh, that, that you have the information you need. So what does this data have? Everybody knows Facebook. Everybody knows how Facebook works. It says that it has your social graph. So it has who your friends are, who you're following, and your likes. It just says likes. So it's not clear if that's likes on posts or pages. Um, and it also says it has basic profile information. So I assume that thing like uh, that's something like birthday or gender, marital status, and whatnot. Okay, so what's really interesting is that this sounds very, very similar to the data from the other article that the consultants for the Obama campaign got in 2012. Now, there could be a moral difference in that there was consent to release that information. Uh, it looked like the 2012 campaign, it's hard to tell exactly what happened, but it looked from the article like the 2012 campaign did kind of spider out to people's social graphs, one level, maybe. Um, but there's no, th there's also mention of scraping for the 2016 campaign. Scraping is very common. That's when you write some code that calls up some web pages, parses them, and voila, there it is, all in your database. In this case, <laughs> this is funny, it looks like it was one of those personality quizzes that helped them get this information. Who hasn't taken a personality quiz on Facebook? You know, like which Game of Thrones character are you or which Harry Potter uh, house would you be sorted into? That sort of thing. And then it says that they match the users to build what's called a psychographic profile. Uh, I'm not sure how that's different from a marketing profile. Maybe it's like a hardcore marketing profile, or it's a way to market your marketing profile. It's like it's like we took the term marketing profile and we gave it to marketers and they upgraded it to psychographic profile. All right, so here are the two opposing narratives now as they stand in this article. There's the guy who runs the analytics consultant firm, and he says that the data wasn't really worth very much in the end. And then there's the whistleblower who says, oh, no, 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 this data was crucial, and I think the word he used was saving grace. I'm having trouble finding either narrative credible. Yeah, that's where I stand now. I don't really believe anything I read. Very sad. Okay, so here's why. The head of the company, I mean, we've already, it says we've already been misled twice, so it's like we never had it. Oh, uh, we had it, we deleted it. Now it's like, ah, oh, we had it, but it didn't do anything. So now you're already kind of a little bit skeptical. Um, on the other side, though, the, the whistleblower has kind of every sensitive in the world to claim that out of all the data sets that they obtained, this one data set, and this is the one that was obtained by, you know, the one that was obtained by someone who obtained it from Facebook under false pretenses was the one data set that did it. It seems a little too perfect. Uh, I also find it interesting that uh, the whistleblower did similar work for the Obama campaign and the Democrats a few years back, then switched to this firm and now turns on them. So you kind of wonder if this was a planned thing. I think we'll find all of this out. Uh, sometimes a data set really is the golden ticket, but it's rare. You know, when a company does have a great data trove, it's usually through years of research and development. It's probably not through one Facebook quiz or not one lucky shot. Uh, I think that what this company was trying to do was get data from anywhere they can, you know, just bring it all in because we don't know where the value is. And so this data set was included so they could have kind of a, a maximal, as they say, 
psychological profile or psychographical political profile of the people. And then they just threw all the data sets into their pipeline and tried to get some answers in the end. That's kind of what I think happened. Uh, could this particular data set have been key? Again, it's possible, but I just don't believe that this kind of data about people is really all that rare. I mean, you don't think that you can buy a lot of this stuff out in the market. I'm sure that you can get something close. I think that this company probably got corroborating data from a lot of other sources. You can buy that. I think, um, I don't know, That's. I assume they would. Um, but it does look like they had this data when they shouldn't have. Now, what does this mean? First, let's have a little dose of realism here. Do any of you think that when you like something on Facebook, uh, do you really believe that that is going to remain private or not be able to be mined by anything when you just like, like a page? Even your messages, I, I think, you know, I would hope that the private messages aren't shared to the world, but deep down, don't we kind of assume that some, some of it's being mined for data insights and that sort of thing? And uh, data gathering, and data insights are not really that uncommon on the internet. You, you know, you, uh, you may have noticed that. Uh, a lot of it is above ground and helps the internet function. Many of your favorite sites are ad-supported, I'm sure. A lot of data targeting goes on behind that. You know, at Foursquare, where I work, we allow companies to use our location technology only when it's a benefit uh, to the consumer experience for that company. And then the data we get allows us to provide that, and I'm proud of it. But it does seem a little bit scary when someone is going after political institutions or when you have these big centralized companies like Facebook being that one point of access. I mean, if you compare this to 2012, it looks like there was no problem in 2012 because Facebook just handed their data over to the consultants for the Obama campaign, uh, and so no one needed to get it under false pretenses. So... I think some people out there are just driving themselves crazy. They're stomping their feet at Facebook. They're like screaming at the clouds because Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. Uh, some people are saying, let's have the government break up these centralized services, even though government is the ultimate centralized service. I never really understood that. Well, if you want to continue torturing yourself, keep doing that. But look, I think there's a better way to go here. And so I'm going to wrap up this half of the podcast. This is the dark half of the podcast. I think there's a better way to go here. It's learning about new technology. And there are various ways to support technology that you think are going to fix the state of affairs. There is help coming to solve this specific problem, I believe. And that's why I put this topic next to an article about decentralized services and how it will help solve not only this problem, but uh, a lot of other problems that uh, you know about the internet today. And this is an article by well-known New York venture capitalist, Chris Dixon. And that's what we'll talk about next after a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Actually, we don't have a sponsor, but uh, this podcast is sponsored by me, Max Sklar, your host. And I am a machine learning engineer and Brooklyn resident and now podcaster. Um, I've been telling people, if you want to help the podcast, then share it on Facebook and Twitter <laughs> after today's episode. I'm not so sure. But maybe you can uh, tell your friends about it and have them subscribe on iTunes. Uh, now, if you want to help out in another way, this would actually be really helpful. Email the show, localmaxradio at gmail.com, and kind of tell me 
which of the few episodes that I've done in the past few weeks was your favorite and what you'd like to see more of. Every single email is going to get a response, and I will take your input into account. Thanks. All right, next up, we're going to talk about an article that came out on Medium last month by uh, Chris Dixon. Chris Dixon is a general partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, and he writes some really good Medium articles. And this Medium article is called Why Decentralization Matters, and it talks about how um, he breaks down a little bit, uh, kind of one slice of the history of the internet, and he talks about why centralized services are going to be replaced by decentralized services in the near future. If you think about it, a lot of the services that we talked about earlier in the program, there's Facebook, there's uh, centralized service, Twitter, centralized service. Um, a lot of services that come from government are centralized services. And um, I think a lot of this is going to change uh, in a short period of time. I mean, I could say in a generation, probably, you know, in five to 10 years, we'll see some massive changes. Um, okay, so uh, in this article, he breaks down the internet into three phases. Now, there are a number of different ways to break the information age down into phases. I mean, one of them you could think about is, well, we had the 90s and that was like the dial-up era and then we had, you know, the 2000s, the high-speed broadband era and now this current decade is the mobile era. Um, but he's really talking about here the, uh, the, the, the different time periods in terms of the major software services that make the internet run. So, for example, the first era of the internet he marks from the 1980s to the early 2000s. This is era one. And this is actually the decentralized era of the internet because the internet itself was, at the time, the ultimate decentralized service. Well, it still is. And so we talk about these protocols. Remember, these protocols, nobody owns the protocols. Anybody can use them. TCP IP, HTTP, the, you know, the World Wide Web, hypertext that came uh, in the early 90s. And you had a lot of small websites, and anyone can build a small website. And in fact, the huge companies that we know today started off as small websites back in that time period. He lists Yahoo, Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Um, YouTube is kind of towards the end of that in 2004. I remember when that happened. And there was an attempt at a centralized platform like AOL, very successful for a period of time, but ultimately that was diminished. And then he said that the second era of the internet, which we're maybe about 10, 15 years into right now, uh, is kind of dominated by these centralized big players, you know, large companies. Uh, and the ones he lists are, well, some of the same ones as before, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. And so the question is, why are these centralized services winning uh, out over these smaller services? I think the answer is that they made the internet easier to use. I mean, think about it. Some, how hard is it to set up a small website? Well, maybe not that hard, but you know, if, if you want to make it good, then you have to have it designed, and sometimes you have to uh, write code for it, and there's a whole bunch of things that you might have to do. But using a centralized service is easy. Signing up for Facebook, much easier 
than maintaining a website. Signing up for Twitter, much easier than, than, than maintaining a website. Putting something on Medium, much easier than maintaining a website, although Medium is not one of the big players that we're talking about here. Um, and it definitely reduced the friction to having your voice being carried online. All right, so the way he distills that, this is kind of like the good news and the bad news. So he says, quote, uh, the good news is that billions of people got access to amazing technologies, many of which were free to use. And then the bad news is that it became harder for startups, creators, and other groups to grow their internet presence without worrying about centralized platforms changing the rules on them and taking away their audiences and their profits. Uh, he also says centralization has created broader societal tensions, which we see in debates over subjects like fake news, state-sponsored bots, no platforming of users, EU privacy laws, and algorithmic biases. All of these are things that I would like to or have addressed many of them on the program. All these things are stuff that I'd like to address on the program. Obviously, uh, today we were talking about you know data leaks and sort of um, how these large centralized platforms are kind of giving one candidate an edge over another in elections. And the, and, but I think, you know, fake news and trolling, particularly on Twitter, we're going to get to Twitter in a second because oh, I was just on today and you see kind of this, you run into some of these Twitter accounts that they'll pop up, they'll say nasty things and you'll be like, well, who is this? It's someone with 10 followers. And then the next day they'll vanish overnight. And you kind of wonder, okay, was this a real person or is this some kind of a information operation? And I know that a lot of the spammers that uh, spamming operations that we've witnessed firsthand are very, people do some very strange things on the internet, very strange tests, and it's very hard to tell what they're trying to do or whether it's a real person who really is that stupid. You'll never know. So, okay, now we get to Web3, the third era of the internet. Crypto networks, we talked about them a little bit last week. That's uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum. And crypto networks combine the best features of the first two eras of the internet. They're community governed, they're decentralized networks, and they have capabilities that will eventually exceed those of the most advanced centralized services. Now, why are we having all of these problems with the centralized services? And he breaks it down here. I mean, ultimately, to me, it just comes down to uh, you know, a single point of failure. Uh, that's never good. That makes things, you know, that makes anything you do much more risky. If you have a single point of failure, for example, you're much more likely to get a giant data breach. Um, if you have a single point of failure, you're much more likely to have uh, a small group of employees uh, do something that they shouldn't do. Uh, but here's another reason. It talks about the economics of these large social networks like Facebook and, and Twitter, and I'm sure a lot of this applies to uh, some of the other companies we talked about as well. And when they start out, uh, he says, everything they do uh, is so that they can recruit users and third-party complements like developers, businesses, and media organizations. So you look at this S-curve. You say, okay, first you have kind of a small website and you're starting out and you're doing everything you can for users. And then what happens is you start saturating the market and you start having, you know, all of the users that you can get into your system already. Okay, now what do you do? How do you grow? And the idea is that you're going to try to extract more and more and more value out of your users. So for example, you might want to encourage users to spend all of their time all day on the site and just waste as much time as possible. 
Um, you might want to uh, cover them with ads and then, you know, uh, basically uh, try to lock them into the system if they are a third-party developer. And so a lot of people see that as a bait and switch. And after a while, these centralized networks kind of start feeling stale and it kind of starts feeling that there's not a lot of innovation happening on them. And so that people, so now I think we're at a point where people want to uh, find a way out. I think that, you know, there were some projects to do this earlier. I remember, you know, roughly, I don't know, was it five to 10 years ago, uh, there was a social network that came out called Diaspora, and that was an attempt to build a decentralized Facebook. I think uh, it didn't quite work out the way they wanted to, I believe, but I think that uh, the idea was just too early. I think that uh, that stuff is going to come back. Now, let's talk about what crypto networks are. Um, crypto networks are networks that are built on top of the internet that, one, use consensus mechanisms such as blockchains to maintain an update state, and two, they use cryptocurrencies, coins and tokens, to incentivize consensus uh, participants, to incentivize consensus participants and other network participants. So in other words, that just means that everybody is incentivized to make the system better than it otherwise would be. So they align all of the participants to work towards a common goal, whether that's making a currency that's a great store of value or to make a great social network or, as we'll talk about in a second, to make a great uh, uh, you know, information source or encyclopedia or that sort of thing. So the important thing to understand, and I want to quote again, today's crypto networks suffer from limitations that keep them from seriously challenging centralized incumbents. The most severe limitations are around performance and scalability. The next few years will be about fixing these limitations and building networks that form the infrastructure layer of the crypto stack. After that, most of the energy will turn to building applications on top of that infrastructure. So a lot of people don't understand uh, that we're still in the very early days of these crypto networks. And if you ask the guy on the street, the proverbial man on the street, they won't really understand how this is going to affect their lives. You know, try asking someone in 1992 how this new thing, hypertext, is going to make your life better. I don't think anyone would really get it at the time. And you can go on YouTube and you can find some of these funny videos of people talking about the early internet. And it's really hard to say how their life would be better. Um, and I don't think people could have uh, imagined the type of social networks that we have today, even just you know a few years before they were started. Moving on to later in the article, an illustrative example is the rivalry in the 2000s between Wikipedia and its centralized competitors like Encarta. If you compare the two products in the early 2000s, Encarta was a far better product with better topic coverage and higher accuracy. And I can I remember this. I used to use Encarta back when I was in high school, and it came on these CDs. Um, Encarta was a far better product with better topic coverage and higher accuracy, uh, but Wikipedia improved at a much faster rate because it had an active community of volunteer contributors who were attracted to its decentralized community-governed ethos. By 2005, Wikipedia was the most popular reference site on the internet, and Encarta was shut down in 2009. Uh, I totally agree with this story, but an interesting thing I might add is that Wikipedia today 
in 2018, almost 20 years after it was started, is now starting to look like a centralized service again, because it's starting to look like, okay, it's run by a single organization, and you have this sort of uh, community of people who are organizing it who seem uh, very tight-knit and hard to break into, and you have all these uh, competing encyclopedias that are out there. Whenever you have a search result, and you'll see each one has kind of a little um, ideological tint to it, which is nice. But I think that these sort of Wikipedia-type organizations are also ripe for disruption with crypto networks. And then finally, the lesson is that when you compare centralized and decentralized systems, you need to consider them dynamically as a process instead of statically as rigid products. Centralized systems often start out fully baked, but only get better at a rate at which employees at the sponsoring company improve them. Decentralized systems start out half-baked, but under the right conditions, and that's important, to, it's not always easy to find the right conditions, uh, they grow exponentially as they attract new contributors. Okay, now I am summarizing, so I do want to skip a little bit. I want to talk about uh, his views on Twitter in regards to being a centralized service. Compare the problem of Twitter spam to the problem of email spam. Since Twitter closed their network to third-party developers, the only company working on Twitter spam has been Twitter itself. That's really interesting. I did not think about that. Uh, by contrast, there were hundreds of companies that tried to fight email spam financed by billions of dollars in venture capital and corporate funding. So I don't know about you, but email spam to me is much less of a problem than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I don't know if you remember, it used to be really bad. Uh, now... Gmail fixes it. Um, it's very, it's still a little bit of a nuisance, but not so much. Whereas Twitter spam, on the other hand, is a huge nuisance. And not only is it people trying to sell me things or, you know, sell me cheap things that I don't want or trying to scam me, but it's just people saying nasty stuff all day. You know, who would want to listen to that? And so that's why I think Chris Dixon really think that something like Twitter is ripe for disruption in the crypto space, and I have to agree. And now coming to the end of the article, consider the problem of network governance. Today, unaccountable group of employees, unaccountable groups of employees at large platforms decide how information gets ranked and filtered. You know, it's funny, I guess at Foursquare that would be me, but the difference is, well, uh, first of all, we're a small player, and secondly, you're not going to get anything as uh, as transparent at Foursquare. I mean, we talk about the whole thing on this podcast all the time, so just come and listen to us. Um, but the larger the company gets and the more turnover it gets, uh, the harder it is to, you know, the, the harder it is to kind of improve that that system. And if they don't involve the community and they don't have an active community, then the system will just kind of languish. So unaccountable employees at large platforms decide how information gets ranked and filtered, which users get promoted, which get banned, and other important governance decisions. In crypto networks, uh, these decisions are made by the community using open and transparent mechanisms. As we know from the offline world, democratic systems aren't perfect, but they are a lot better than the alternatives. And I actually think that the crypto systems that are going to arrive are going to be even better 
than the democratic systems that we know, uh, because oftentimes in the democratic systems that we know, um, you sort of have everyone voting on something regardless of how much skin they have in the game and regardless of how the outcome affects them personally. But I think that these new crypto networks are going to be designed uh, with the goal in mind that we need to align people's incentives so that the people who have the most information and who have the most skin in the game and who are the most affected personally by what happens, I guess that is skin in the game, um, will be the ones that are making the decision. So that's what I think the response to all of these problems are going to be in the next decade. And it's actually very easy to invest in some of these new crypto projects. There are a lot of scams out there. There are a lot of so-called pump and dumps out there. But if there's a project out there, you know, it's not like the old days when you can, you know, you have to be an accredited investor to, uh, you know, invest in these new companies and you have to kind of go around and get, get in good personally with the founder. A lot of these decentralized tokens, you can look up, you can do your research online. And you could say, hey, I really like what these people are doing. I believe in the team. And then you can sort of buy some tokens and put some money into it. Um, and it's, you know, I can't tell you what a good investment is. I don't know what a good investment is, but I figure that there's room for just saying, hey, I believe that the world needs this. And so I'm going to uh, park some, some value there. Uh, you know, as a statement of, I want to use my funds to help build this. Uh, so, all right, that's all I have to say for today. And next week, we're going to have Dennis Crowley on the program, and we're going to talk about, uh, you know, a little bit of the, uh, his history and in getting into building these, uh, you know, location-based networks and these consumer products and where we think we're going to go in the future with augmented reality and uh, voice and bots and all that. So it's going to be a really fun discussion. I also want to talk to Aaron about how I cracked his last code, and I was going to talk about it today, but I think we've gone on long enough, and I might have a chance to uh, get him in person next week. So that'd be a lot of fun. Have a good week, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. I don't care what you say. You're going to see me shine.